You all can be seated. We're going to be jumping into the scriptures today. We've been talking about the life of David, a man who is absolutely flawed in many ways, as all of us are, but he's also known as a man after God's own heart. And it's wonderful to know that regardless of whatever failures or struggles we've experienced, that we can run back to God, that His grace is available to us in our time of need, that we can boldly go before His throne. And so I want to welcome you uh, to the scriptures this morning. So we, last week, we looked at the story of David and Goliath, uh, likely a passage that you're familiar with in, in general. Uh, and David, this young shepherd boy who wasn't even called to war, he was uh, essentially doing Uber Eats and bringing food to his brothers, but he with boldness uh, could not stand still as he heard this enemy defy the armies of the living God, that he, he was speaking against God himself. And David couldn't understand, why hasn't anyone else done anything about this? And he chose to go boldly stepping into the valley and bringing only a sling and a shepherd's staff in his pouch. He charged and ran at this giant who was a man of war and had slain many men. Uh, and David, because the battle was the Lord, was able to defeat him. And so today we're going to talk about that this one moment in David's life ends up giving him opportunity of promotion. It gives him opportunity for new relationships in his life. And he wouldn't know, like we don't always know, uh, the people that we come across, how long they're going to walk alongside us, how long we're going to be able to be united with them. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't always know whether someone is only uh, feigning their interest or, or liking us and just flattering us, right? We don't know all the time, but God is faithful. In the midst of people who may be against you, people may be for you, right? God is faithful to be your friend in your time of need, and he's faithful to place, the scripture says in the Psalms, he puts the lonely in families. And one of the ways he does that, regardless of what your biological family is like, right? God places you in a church family where you are connected, you are valued, right? Where God uses your giftings for the, the mutual edification, the building up of one another, that God calls you to be a friend to other people in your community. He doesn't intend on you being by yourself in your walk with God. And so let's see what happens in David's life. We're going to start at the end of 1 Samuel 17. And so verse 55, as soon as Saul, the current king, saw David go out against the Philistine, that is Goliath, he speaks to Abner, the commander of the army, and he's like, Abner, who, whose son is this kid, right? Who's, whose dad is this, like, who, whose dad is his, this guy? Like, who is this guy? This guy? I, don't, I don't know. And, and weirdly enough, Saul already knew the answer to this question, or it had been told him before, at least in the sequence of the scriptures, because David's already played music for Saul. But Saul didn't think who David was was very important. He viewed David only as a means to an end to bring comfort to him when he was distressed. And so now that he's realizing, like, this kid is starting to do mighty things, he's a man of integrity, he's doing things for the Lord, and God is with him, now he's like, i got to figure out who this is. Where, where did he say he was from? And so he asks Abner. And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. That up to this point, David really hadn't made much of a name for himself. Right? Even though he sometimes was in the king's palace, 
No one really paid attention to him, only the talent or the music that he could play, but they kind of forgot who he was. In verse 56, the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the giant in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And so he's like, listen, I am in submission to my father, Jesse, and he is your servant, right? He's, he's coming from a place of humility, even though he just had this incredible victory that no one else in all of Israel was willing to, to step out into that valley to fight Goliath. He still demonstrates humility before the king. And he says, listen, I'm in submission to my dad, and my dad is your servant. And so, verse 1 of the next chapter, 1 Samuel 18 As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, and now Jonathan is King Saul's son. He's a prince. And notice what we see with Jonathan. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And so Jonathan saw something in David. I don't think it was just the the celebration nor the fame that was going to come. It wasn't the accolades. It wasn't the promotion that David was going to get. But but Jonathan saw something in David that he, he admired. And remember, David was a man after God's own heart. Even when his name was unknown and he's just the shepherd boy out in the wilderness watching the sheep and singing songs to God, Jonathan sees something in David's life. That he's like, I, there's something about this guy. I'm, I, I gotta connect myself to him. I want him to be my friend. I need him in my life. I see something in him that I don't see even in my own dad. And so Jonathan just is immediately connected to Saul. And I don't think that this was fake. I don't think he was just gonna jump on the David kills Goliath bandwagon. That he genuinely makes this friendship with David and he follows through with it. Now, other people are going to love and celebrate David, but not all of them are going to really be this deep friend that David needs. And that's the same thing for us. There's going to be all sorts of people that God brings across our paths, but there are people that God intends on being in your life to come alongside you, to encourage you, to equip you, to sometimes even challenge you when you're doing the wrong thing, and right, point you back to God. And, and you need friends like that in your life. God doesn't want you to be alone in your walk with him. And so Jonathan knits his soul to David. I think about the words of Jesus where he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That that Jonathan is like, what's happening in David's life, I'm going to be with him through the midst of it. That if David is suffering, I'm going to be grieved as well. And when things are going well for David, even if they're not in my own life, I'm going to rejoice with David when God is blessing his. That he knits his soul. He's lined up with him. And he loves David as his own soul. Verse 2, And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And so he's like, you're working for me now, son. You just got a job. And verse 3, And Jonathan made a covenant with David. All right, so now a covenant we've heard of, we've, we've seen in the Old Testament where like usually it's this, this promise, this contract where there's usually even the slaying of an animal to re- re- symbolize how serious this contract is. But Jonathan makes this covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. 
And verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt, right? And so he says, right, you have my sword, you have my bow, you have my belt, right? As he gives all of these things to David, right? He's, he's, he's equipping David. And, and remember, Jonathan's father, just the previous chapter, tried to give David his own armor to fight Goliath, and it wasn't going to be sufficient. It wasn't going to work. David didn't know how to use that stuff when he went to war. But Jonathan is saying, listen, like, even though I am the son of the king, I'm equipping you with all of my armor and my gear, my possessions, Right, so that I'm, I'm recognizing that you, there's something that God's doing in your life, and I want to be a part of it. I'm willing to diminish myself in the sight of others in order to see God work through you in mighty ways. And so Jonathan is this incredible friend to David, and we'll see that throughout this series. And Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. And this is keeping with the commandment of the Scriptures, part of their culture and their practice. In Leviticus 19, God had instructed through Moses, he says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And as if you might ask, like, why do I need to do that, God? He says, because I'm the Lord, right? I'm signing my name at the bottom of this command. I'm telling you to love other people, to be concerned about the needs of others to lift other people up as if you were caring about your own body and your own comforts and your own needs, right? To love other people as you love yourself. And in verse 33 of the same chapter, he, he continues and he expands it beyond just the population of Israel. He says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat him, uh, treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you and you shall love him as yourself. And as if you're asking the question, well, God, why do I have to love them? Like, that's hard. I'd rather just love myself. That comes naturally to me. And he says, this is why. Because you yourselves were strangers and foreigners in the land of Egypt. And also, because I'm the Lord your God, I can tell you what to do, right? Like, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so Jonathan, in some way, is doing this very thing but I think it, it came just with joy to him to love David in this way, to, to connect with David in this way. It wasn't, I don't think, toilsome for Jonathan to, to have this friendship with David. It was this mutual friendship, by the way. It wasn't as if David was just looking for a groupie or a fan club. But no, David remains faithful to Jonathan as well, even after Jonathan's death, that David cares for Jonathan. In the New Testament, we are instructed in much the same way, that the way that we should love one another is, is well-defined, and Paul writes about this in Romans 13. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, right? All of the details, the 613 commands in the Old Testament, right? Jesus says, Paul says, that, that they're all summarized in this one. Right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so he continues, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, we'll visit in a moment, and any other commandment are summed up with this word, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
And so think about David's life. David is going to begin to rise in fame and in power and authority. And that could have been a threat, and it is in many ways, a threat to Jonathan's future kingdom. Because Jonathan is the heir after Saul. Saul immediately views it as a threat. But Jonathan, he's like, I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to be jealous of the attention that David is getting. Right? I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna begin to like view him as a threat. I'm going to celebrate what God is doing in his life, even if I might not know what God's future is for me. But he's willing to rejoice. He's willing to love his neighbor. This reminds me of the humble response of another John in the scriptures. All right, you might remember that, that in the New Testament, as Jesus' ministry begins to grow. John the Baptist's ministry begins to kind of diminish and fade away. And some of John the Baptist's own disciples come to him. And in John chapter 3, verse 26, they come and say, Hey, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Right? Like, hey, John, we're following you, but notice everybody's going to follow Jesus. And they're like, so what do you think about this? And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He's like, God is clearly doing this in Jesus' life. Like, what am I going to do, fight against it? Or think about Jonathan and David. He's like, if, if God is raising up David, what am I going to do, fight against this guy? This man is full of integrity and love and zeal for God. And dude just killed a giant. Like, what am I supposed to do, like fight against this? What if I'm fighting against the very thing God is doing? Right? Like, if, if God is giving this to David, that's okay. Right? It's the same sort of idea. And John, the Baptist, in verse 27, he answered his disciples, A person right, cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And he gives this little parable here. And notice this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so he compares Jesus and his growth and advancement to being like the bridegroom, and, and John is the best man. And he says, listen, like, I'm thrilled that God is doing something good in the life of Jesus and with his ministry, right? My joy is complete when I hear these things that God is doing. He's like, I never told you I was the Christ anyway. I specifically said I wasn't. But now God is doing this work, and I rejoice at the voice of my friend. I am the friend of the bridegroom. And so this is the way John the Baptist responds in incredible humility, right? He says, listen, Jesus' ministry needs to increase in mine. It needs to be on the way out, and that's okay. That's a good thing. God is doing good things among our people, and, and greater things are going to be done than for me to just try to get in the way and build my own kingdom and have my own thing. And so Jonathan, the son of Saul, acts much, much the same way with, with David. Right? He gives him his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt, and he makes this covenant. And he loves him as his own soul. So let's go to verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. 
so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so, right, this is the kind of life we typically want and pray for, like, God, just make me successful in everything I do. It doesn't always work that way, okay? But sometimes, for some seasons, that's what God is doing, and that's something to rejoice and celebrate. And, and when David gets this promotion over the men of war, notice we, we get introduced to this new group of people. We've seen how Jonathan reacts. We've seen a little bit how Saul reacts. But now we're seeing how the people of Israel themselves are responding. And all of them agree. Like, that was the right move, King Saul. Like, we're all behind you on this. You should have promoted David. We like that decision. And the people like David. Now, we don't always have the favor of the crowds. We don't always get the approval of our culture or our community. But sometimes we do. And right, we can enjoy it when we have it, but we can't go with the sway or the influence of the people. Verse 6, And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. All right, and so imagine these people, these cities would have been slaves to the Philistines were it not for David defeating Goliath. All right, and so this is a big deal. This isn't just like some weird national pride thing. This is like, we would have been slaves. Our kids would have been slaves, and now we're free, right? This is worth having a parade about. And so verse 7, the woman sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck his, down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. In verse 8, Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And so David gets the affection and approval of the city of the people, of all of the cities, right? They're on TikTok singing songs about David, and he's the popular one right now, right? And Saul begins to get jealous, right? He's like, wait, what do you mean 10,000? He slayed one, one Goliath, one giant. It still only counts as one. Like, I've killed thousands, right? Like, I don't understand this. And he begins to have this jealousy, this suspicion towards David, and he eyes him from that point forward. The, the prophet Samuel had already told Saul that God was taking the kingdom from his hand and giving it to another. And now Saul's starting to think, is David the one? Is he the one that God's going to give my kingdom to? Right? And he starts to be suspicious. He's angry and displeased. And notice, this is so, so sad in the life of Saul. He entertains and he dwells upon these thoughts of jealousy and anger. Right? Because all of us experience temptation. All of us have sinful thoughts that come past our mind, but are we going to, to dwell on them? Are we going to let them build a, a, a stronghold in our mind, in our lives? And Saul gives in. Saul fully entertains these thoughts and pours his, his attention towards it. And it says this, verse 10, the next day, the very next day, so he gives himself over to these human and perhaps even demonic desires, and the very next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. That has a different meaning in our culture these days. It wasn't a rave, okay? But nonetheless, uh, but right, David has previously played music for Saul, 
in order to soothe him whenever he's distressed by the Spirit. And Saul had his spear in his hand. And while David's playing, verse 11, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'm going to pin David to the wall. Okay, not every thought that comes across your mind is one that you have to follow through with, right? Not every thought that you get is a good idea, right? Even though you want to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing to do. And so he throws the spear at David, desiring to kill him. But David evaded him twice. Like, imagine that, like, just playing music and the spear gets chucked at you and Saul, like, misses and then he's like, uh, oops, just slipped. And then he tries to do it again? Like, how do you, like, talk yourself out of that? But David's like, man, this spirit is really distressing Saul today. And David's just so faithful, so loyal. Now, what's interesting is with Saul, he's at this point where he's angry and jealous of David and even has murderous intent towards him. But previously, Saul, when he first encountered David, loved him. It actually says this in uh, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Verse 23, And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And so notice, like, Saul's first encounter with David was one of love, but it wasn't genuine love. It was loving him for the gift, for the thing that he could do for Saul. It was an actual friendship, right? It was a relationship of, I'm going to just use you to get the things that I need. And so, but at this point now, Saul is fully jealous. He's given himself completely over to this anger and this rage. And we've seen this throughout the scriptures. The the Pharisees and Sadducees would get jealous of Jesus and his ministry. Or in the book of Acts, they would be jealous of, of the crowds that grew around the disciples as they would heal. They would then, out of their jealousy, do sinful things, more sinful things. Right? They would arrest and beat the disciples. They would rally a crowd and start a riot against Paul. But this isn't a problem just with those who don't follow Jesus. Jealousy is also something that can be a, an issue for us followers of Jesus in the church. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. That, that followers of Jesus, even in churches, sometimes we just get caught up in, in living for ourselves and doing our own thing. He says, you are still of the flesh, for where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? That when we give ourselves into that attitude, it, it tears apart the relationship, the, the church family that God intends for us to have, right? We get caught up in all of these things and we're acting human rather than the, the new spirit that God has given us. For one says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human, Paul says? Right when we as believers get caught up and right, we choose whatever camps or ministries we associate with and to the point where we're like almost at odds with one another, he's like, you're just being merely human. Like that's not we should rejoice what work God is doing in different churches and different ministries across the world. Right? We're not in competition, right? We're we're wanting to see the, the name of Jesus go for, forth. And and so so Paul is saying you're acting merely human follower of Jesus when you give into those desires. But James actually goes further. He doesn't just say that this is a human 
emotion. James says this in chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And so James actually says that when we give over to jealousy and selfish ambition, desiring to build our own kingdoms, we're not merely human, as Paul says, that we might be giving space to the enemy, to demonic doctrines and thoughts at work in our lives. And so James just calls it what it is. Verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And this is written to the church, okay? And so I just want to let that be fair warning when we see Saul's life. As Saul entertains these thoughts and goes after these ideas, the very next day, the enemy gets a foothold, a stronghold in his life, and causes him distress and oppression. Let's keep going. Verse 12. So Saul, this is 1 Samuel 17, 18, sorry. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul eventually removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And right, and so Saul, we're seeing, is getting worse and worse in his mentality towards David, someone who is the most faithful soldier in his army. And yet he's suspicious, he's murderous, and, and he's eyeing him, and he right, removes him from his presence, doesn't even want to see, see him, and he's afraid of what God is doing in David's life. And this other group, the people of Israel and Judah, they now fully love David. David won't always have the love of the people. Right? But sometimes we might have the love of the crowd or our culture, but that won't always be the case. Verse 17, Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Right? Like Saul's even still talking the language of their culture, right? talking about God and the Lord's battles. But no, he's so caught up in his own mind. He says, for Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but the, let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Saul already was unsuccessful in spearing David twice. And so now he's like, let, maybe, maybe this enemy army is going to defeat him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time, when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Meholathites, we'll call it, boom, for a wife. And now we get this new character, verse 20. Saul's other daughter, Michal, loved David. And so here's this new person, right, this kind of fourth category. So far we've got Jonathan, Saul, the people of Israel, and now Michal, okay? And Michal loved David. And they told Saul, right? The servants tell Saul this thing. And the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. 
Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And notice that Saul is plotting David's death through an enemy army. Now, sadly, you might know the story of David, that much later on, David kind of tries to do the same thing to his friend Uriah, right? Like this, this terrible thing that David does as well. And so verse 22, Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. But this isn't genuine. This is flattery, right? On one hand, Saul hates David and despises him and eyes him with suspicion and implants his murder, but he's putting on this facade in which he's saying how much he delights in David. And that's not true friendship. There will be people in your life that tell you the things you want to hear, but they don't genuinely care for you or love you. Uh, David's son, Solomon, ends up writing this in Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Other translations say deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And that's what Saul's doing. He's like flattering David and celebrating all these things when really he's planning his murder. Verse 23. And now, now this is a weird story that I'm glad the kids aren't here for because it's just one of those awkward moments in the Bible. Let's find out what happens. And Saul's servants spoke the words to the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and of no reputation? And the servants of, of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price uh, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, now that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. And now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the enemy Philistines, right? So David wasn't going to negotiate getting a hundred foreskins from the enemies, right? Saul knew he's like, You're going to have to fight these guys to do that, okay? Uh, and so when, verse 26, his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men, and instead of 100, he killed 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David, and so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And so notice this. Saul initially loves David, and he transitions from love to jealousy, suspicion, to eventually being oppressed by a spirit, to intending murder, recognizing that God was working in David's life, but not with himself, and trying to coordinate the murder of David through an enemy army. And eventually, he's David's enemy continually. And David didn't deserve any of this from Saul, right? David didn't deserve this. He was faithful and loyal to Saul's kingdom. And so in Saul's life, that's what happens as he encounters this young man, David. Whereas Israel initially didn't even know who David was, right? Abner was like, I don't, even, I don't know whose dad he has. Like, I don't know who this kid is, right? But eventually Israel falls even in love 
with David. But David won't always have the favor of the people. Eventually, right, he'll lose that as well. But yet Jonathan and Michal, both of them at this point, love David. And we'll end up seeing over their story how that pans out. Are they going to hold true to that love for David? This makes me think of, and it's not a direct parallel, just so you're aware, but the four-seed parable. Okay, we see these four characters, Jonathan, Saul, the people, and Michal. And think about the four-seed parable, which isn't about David and friendship. It's about the Word of God and our hearts, how they respond to it. But let me just combine these two for a moment. In Luke chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus explains this parable to his friends, his disciples. He says, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Right? Even the enemy of God's kingdom knows that when we hear God's word, it has the potential to produce faith in us and bring about salvation. And so the enemy tries to snatch the word of God from our hearts. Verse 13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for that that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And so what I want to point out, right, more important than the story in the life of David, is that you open your heart to the word of God, to trust in the Son of God, the Savior, the Son of David, if you will, uh, and, and open your heart to him and let God's word produce fruit in your life. Right? That you don't let the enemy snatch that away. That you don't let the cares of this world distract you. Right? That you, don't, you, you let God's word take deep root in your life. But let's play this parallel for a minute. In David's life, in your life, people will respond to you and receive you in different ways. Some of them will rejoice immediately upon meeting you. Right? But then once, like, some amount of testing because of associating with you comes along, they might walk away. Other people might uh, feign interest in you and, and receive you, but then life is busy and that's, that's okay, right? The cares of this world, or they, they move away or get caught up in different things or have other friendships and family and responsibilities, right? Some friendships will be like that. Other times, right, people will, will love you and care for you and genuinely come alongside you and have a friendship in which it bears great fruit mutually for the both of you. And that's what David ends up experiencing with his friend Jonathan. And we don't always know who these people are going to be. But we can't always become depressed and distraught when different people come in or, or out of our lives. But we need to rejoice and thank God for the people that he's placed with us. That God has put people in your life for the purpose of encouraging you, for weeping with you, for being with you, for directing you towards God, God's plan and purpose in your life. And while not everybody will be on your side, the crowds won't always sing your praises. God puts friends in your life 
God puts a church family in your life to come alongside you, to equip you, and to love you more than they love themselves. And even when it might not feel like that's always there, the Lord Jesus himself loves you in that way. Here, Joe, let's skip down to John 15, 12, verse 12, if you would. Jesus said this at the Last Supper. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And I want to point out, this is a a step up from the command that we've heard. We're not just taught to love others as we love ourselves, because maybe I'm not that great at loving myself. And so, like, the worse that I'm at that, like, the less I'm responsible to love other people. And so it's like, I can lower my standard (laughs) so I don't have to love other people. But Jesus is, no, no, no. It's not love others as you love yourself. Love others as I have loved you. The Jesus who just prior to this washed the feet of his disciples, who broke bread and poured the wine, right, in commemoration of this new covenant that he was making with them to initiate and point out, like, I'm going to break my body, I'm going to shed my blood so I can be your friend, so that I can be with you forever. That Jesus makes this covenant, and he says that the community that he starts on that day, the birth of the church, is such that those people will love one another as Jesus loved them. Verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. And so even in seasons of your life, and David will experience it too, where he feels completely alone and abandoned, yes, even sometimes by his friends, but God is faithful. David will end up encouraging himself and in the Lord. He sings songs to the Lord. He speaks to his soul. He's like, why are you thinking like this? He reminds himself of what God has done. And when you're in a lonely season in your life, right, look for the friends that God has already placed around you. But even if you can't find them, Jesus is with you. Lo, even to the end of the age. Right? And he is with you. He loves you. He cares for you. And he gave his life for you. And he doesn't just want to be with you in hard seasons or good seasons in this lifetime, but for all of eternity. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that Lord, we were a people of no reputation. We were of little influence, and yet, God, you seek us out. You in all of your glory as king of all the earth. You sought us out, and you chose to die in our place for our sin. Lord, you called us friends. You are God of all creation, Lord of everything. And instead of of just ignoring us or looking at us as a small piece of what you've made. You actually want to know us and be with us. You want us to, to be with you. You desire for us to dwell in your courts and in your house. Lord, it's amazing to, to think that you would think about us, and yet you love us. You know everything about us. I pray, God, that we as your people would dig in to our relationship with you this week that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that, Lord, in the secret, in the quiet place, Lord, that we we would put you first. 
and spend time in building our relationship with you, that we would be men and women after your own heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.